Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. This is episode 736. This is my interview with Rich Sheridan. I hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode on the Hidden Why Podcast. How the heck are you? Hope you're very well indeed. It is Lee Martinuzzi here, and today I'm glad and grateful to be bringing you another interview which uh, is just inspiring. It's uplifting. It's an interview with Rich Sheridan. He is the author of his previous book called Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, really important stuff. And his latest book released in 2018 is called Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Guys, this is about how to bring more love and care and kindness and joy into the workplace. But a lot of the things we discuss in this episode are transferable to our daily lives. It's about creating more joy in every moment. And um, yeah, there's some cool takeouts. Like the first one that we talk about is being more collaborative, working together. I think it's just so powerful, just that idea. And uh, certainly we explore that and other things in this interview. Let me know what you think. Jump on to thehiddenwhy.com. You can leave your comments in the comments fields. You can also connect with me at Facebook, The Hidden Why, and uh, through Messenger there as well. Rich Sheridan is available, guys. He's actually opened his doors. If you want to go check out his workplace, if you're in the area of Michigan, and uh, you can reach out to Rich also online. I'll stick the links in the show notes for this episode, episode 736 at thehiddenwhy.com. Use the links within to support the show if you want to pick up a copy or a couple of copies of his books. Thanks, guys, for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy this interview G'day, Rich, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lee. How are you? I'm warm, actually. <laughs> I'm really good, <laughs> but it's actually quite humid here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia at the moment, and probably very cold where you are. Yeah, we're, I would guess, almost opposing sides of the planet in yeah. every dimension. Whereabouts are you based? We are in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so right on the northern coast of uh, the U.S., uh, up bumping up against what's called the Great Lakes up this way. Okay. Yeah, I speak, seem to speak to a lot of people from that area, Michigan. Yeah, we're the we're the state shaped like a mitten. It's the one you can actually see from outer space. Oh, there you go. <laughs> cool, cool. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Rich. You've got a, a company, a successful company that a lot of people look up to. Yeah, um, I am an entrepreneur. I started Menlo with my co-founders back in 2001, so hmm. uh, it it still feels like a startup to me, but we're bumping up against 18 years old now. And uh, I started Menlo when I was 43 years old. I always knew I would start a company. I didn't think it would take that long, but life has its uh, means of getting in the way while you're making plans to do other things. So oh, I love uh, that. I love that. I think it, it shows... <laughs> It just shows how life is, you know, like sometimes yep. things don't happen early. And I actually spoke to someone the other day about, um, you know, they say some of our most creative and productive years are our, are our early years. Um, but the data shows truly too that a lot of people do start businesses and make their ultimate ideas a success later in life as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think there's ever a right time or a wrong time to start a business. When you're young, you don't have a lot of... Uh, uh, things weighing you down that uh, the grand responsibilities of life may not have started yet. Uh, and when you're older, you have a little bit more experience to hopefully make uh, a few less dumb mistakes along the way, but I'm sure I've made my share. <laughs> yeah. So Menlo Production Software Company, yeah? 
Yeah, we are a software design and development firm. We're almost like a custom home builder. Uh, Menlo Innovations uh, designs and builds software for other businesses. And so we are essentially a contract software design and development firm. Yeah, nice, nice. Rich, I'll just ask quickly, there's there's a bit of a scratching sound there. I don't know if you've got uh, earphones in that might be scratching on a, a I, collar or something. Do I might be moving around inappropriately, so I'll try and uh, I'll it's, try and um, be more calm. Is it better now? It is. Yeah, it's. Um, I know the noise by now because <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> use those headphones, but that's all good. So tell us, you've written a couple of books, um, which will be quite fascinating. This is why I reached out to you because I really am fascinated by joy. And what struck me as interesting is you wrote about um, an experience with seeing. I think it was described as suffering in the workplace. Um, yes. And the reason why that struck me as interesting is because I'm all about trying to alleviate the suffering in my life and creating more joy in my life. And that's through speaking with people like you and learning along the way. And, and in the process, I like to share and inspire others to hopefully um, think about it themselves and even share some value that they might be able to use in their own lives to create a life with more joy. Now, whilst you've taught, sort of talked about it in the organizational thing, uh, in the organizational sense, I believe there's probably a lot of crossovers that we can take away from not only how to create joyful cultures, but how to create joyful lives. Um, Absolutely. And I don't know if you agree, but yeah, I'm sure there's connections, yeah? Absolutely, there are. So you've got, um, yeah, your first book was quite a bit of a success, released in 2015, Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love. So I assume that's a book about um, more the process that you went through um, developing the culture at Menlo and then your newest book, Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear um, was just launched uh, late last year, wasn't it? Yes, yep. right in December. So it's about a month old. So where do we start talking about joy? And I mean, f- yeah, I guess the first question I have is what was your experience when you saw this suffering in the workplace and what does that look like? Yeah, my career started out as a programmer when I was just a little kid. Uh, I write, I wrote code when I was about 13 years old, way back in 1971. Uh, hard to hard to imagine for a lot of young people that there were, in fact, computers back in those days, but there were. And I thought this was something that uh, this could be a career. This could be a profession that could carry me for a lifetime. And I pursued it with great uh great interest and passion and uh, ultimately got a couple of degrees from a prestigious university here in the United States and launched a career. And I thought, man, this is it. I I love Mm -hmm. what I do. I'm well trained for it. I'm pretty good at it. But by my mid-30s, I I didn't even want to be in the profession anymore. I was experiencing that human suffering in the technology industry that unless you're in it, you might not recognize it. But I was leading a life of chaos where we weren't able to work with pride. We weren't able to get quality products out there. We were firefighting every day. There were quality issues galore. We were always fighting with unhappy customers because we didn't build what they needed. And man, I I thought maybe I'm just not good enough for this. Maybe I, I don't know what I'm doing. And as I surveyed the industry I was in, I realized, man, there's a lot of suffering in the technology industry. And I thought, boy, you know, am I, am I good enough to overcome this? And, you know, it was the thing that was feeding my family. It was the thing that, uh, you know, I was trained for. And uh, by this point, my mid-30s, I'm kind of, you know, 
weighed down with the responsibility of house and home and family and mm. that sort of thing. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I was, quite frankly, I was a little scared. I, I wasn't sure I could keep doing what I was doing for another 30 years to feed my family, but I didn't know what else I could do. And so I, I began a journey out and it led me to authors and books. And, and what I realized at that time was uh, the real opportunity inside of all this wasn't about technology. It was about leadership. It was about teamwork. It was about management. It was about systems thinking. And so I, I went on this sort of personal journey of just diving into all kinds of business books like Tom Peters in Search of Excellence and so on. And um, I realized there was a better way of doing things than was customary. I was determined to find it. And by my late 30s, early 40s, I took some big chances, took some big risks. They worked. And I haven't looked back since. And I have gotten back to joy in my life. And my company has a pretty grand mission. Uh, you know, I guess companies should pick those uh, those big North Star goals that you can never get to but can inspire you for a lifetime. And ours is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology because that's what I had experienced. And we not only wanted to do it for the people who did the work, which was important to us because we didn't think we could produce good work if there was sort of suffering in the room, but we ultimately you know, really chose this focus of joy, which is to delight those we intend to serve with the work Okay. So the mission, there's a lot of things I'd like to ask about that, but the mission for your, your, your organization there is to end suffering in the world or end suffering in the workplaces around the world? You know, the, the, here's where we've gotten to as a society, whether we like it or not, there mm. is software, everything now, right? You can't pump gas at the pump. You can't make a phone call. You can't buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks without software. And uh, so Part of it was we found that everybody was getting frustrated with technology mm. everywhere. And we didn't want that. You know, we were an industry that learned to call the people we serve stupid users and then write dummies books for those poor people. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's that doesn't seem like a good approach. Why don't we honor the people we intend to serve and uh, and do so by you know, literally studying them as an anthropologist would and design the work so that it works for them, not just the technologists who created it. And so, uh, you know, yes, suffering in the workplace, because that's a lot of place we use technology, right. but software invades every aspect of our lives these days, whether we want it to or not. So it's really about creating the software that is going to help people, delight. yeah, delight yep. people, whether they're in a workplace or not, to have more joy. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, we I like that. What, have, what is a, what is an example of some software that you've created that that maybe people are familiar with? Yeah, so, well, uh, I don't know that any of the software we've created is something the general public would be familiar with because we're often creating applications that are used in business or technical context. I'll give yeah. you an example. Uh, we have created, um, co-created with a customer of ours, the world's leading flow cytometer. Now, you probably don't even know what that is because uh, we didn't know <laughs> the project. Uh, but this is a, a, a pretty amazing device that analyzes blood samples 
for researchers who are trying to cure cancer, cure AIDS, or at least help people with new therapies for those kind of diseases. And we created the software that went along with this blood analyzing device so that researchers could speed their progress along to try and find cures for these illnesses. Mm. It is now being used to monitor the treatment of people who have those illnesses. And uh, there were devices like that out in the world, but they were very difficult to use. It could often only be used by a true expert. And we created a desktop version that is usable by uh, a much wider range of people with far less expertise. They still have to understand research into bloodborne cancers and other illnesses and that, but they didn't have to be an expert in the hardware, the device, and the software to use it. It worked the way they thought it should work. And we've literally had people from all over the world because this device is actually used by researchers and healthcare systems around the world now. Mm. And and they write us from everywhere and just tell us how much they love using it because uh, they don't have to take training classes or read user manuals or, or fight through help text or make a lot of support calls in order to use it. It works the way they think it should work. And they, they, they tell us they love it because it makes their lives better because they're not there to use a piece of software. They're, you, they're there to cure cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would um, yeah, obviously benefit their lives, but also the people that they're working with as well. Absolutely. Have you, um, I know you've done some TED Talks. Have you done a TED Talk on that particular? I have, yeah. My first TED Talk was, in fact, on this idea of how do we serve the users of software? Um, and uh, we, I talk in that talk about our high-tech anthropology practice, which is the essentially our art for going out in the world and studying the people we intend to serve with the software we're building and study them in their native environment. Because hmm. until we learn their workflow, their habits, their goals as human beings and their vocabulary, uh, we're not going to design good software for them. No. So how do you, um, how do you identify um, the areas where you could potentially provide a solution? You know, <laughs> A lot of people come to us and they say, hey, Menlo, we'd like you to help us build this app. And uh, we often ask them this uh, uh, key question, which surprises them, because uh, we say, well, gee, what problem are you trying to solve? Hmm. They okay. look at us funny, like, what do you mean? And we said, well, why are you here? And they're like, well, you build software. We need software. And we're like, well, the software is a solution. But we we want to know is what problem are you trying to solve in the world? And they sometimes are taken aback by that question because they, they're coming in with a solution-oriented mindset. And our mindset is always around what problem are we trying to solve. So we actually do typically uh, with customers who come in our door, we do this early discovery phase because we find out sometimes the problem they thought they were trying to solve isn't actually a problem. And yeah. the problem that really should be solved is a much bigger problem and a much more important one. Yeah. Okay. I assume that's that happens. Yeah, more often than not, and I have heard that before. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of engineering mindset is around uh, what we call solutioning. Uh, you know, you start coming up with solutions long before you even understand what the problem is. And our high tech anthropologists step back and say, let's make sure we understand that there is a real problem and and what is it yeah. before we start designing the, the answer. So you go out on the field with them into their environments and really learn more about that to then 
you know further identify that problem yes yep. and then, and and we, then provide solutions them. from there yeah you know and, and a lot of times you know a lot of people think oh you go out and interview people well we do that too but the main tool we use is actually observation because hmm. people self-report things you know oh this is easy i never have a problem with this and we watch them do things and they have all kinds of problems but you know it's just like a almost like a chronic you know i had a chronic pain in my knee for a long time but after a while i just never felt it anymore and people would come up to me and say hey rich why are you limping <laughs> yeah, i'm not limping <laughs> no no you're limping and i'm like oh oh that oh yeah i forgot i even had that you know it's like amazing how we get used to pain after a while no, absolutely. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's like having a coach. I, I suppose you know that someone can look at you and observe you, and how you do things. Because it's easy to not pick up on the things that perhaps you're doing incorrectly or could do better. Um, and also, well, yeah, basically that. And so, if there's a coach there watching you, they can observe you and go, "Hey, hang on, you're not picking up on this. You can maybe do this a little bit different." Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about um, joy in the workplace that you've created. How have you gone about leading your team to, you know, raise their energy and help them, you know, just find more joy um, with their work they do? Because that's a big problem across the board with 85% of the people really not satisfied with the work they do. And yes, we're not always going to love what we do uh, in all aspects. Um, but if we can find joy in day-to-day -day workplaces, then that'll certainly help. Yes, and this is a primary focus of my life now. Uh, it was, you know, I, I always tell people I was on a pretty selfish journey. I wanted to create a workplace that I wanted to be in every day. Uh, it turned out I had to start a business in order to accomplish that. Um, and uh, fortunately, there's a few dozen more people that want to join me on this journey every single day. And so, um, you know, we do a lot of kind of surprising things here even some that today are being vilified out in the open <laughs> in the uh, in the publishing world uh, for example we work in one of those vilified open office environments that everybody talks about and people often ask us why it works for us and doesn't seemingly work anywhere else and I tell them I said oh we didn't build an open office we built an open and collaborative culture our office is a reflection of some of our deepest held cultural beliefs. And so about teamwork and transparency and collaboration and trust. And so uh, we spend a lot of time working together. We actually work in pairs, two people, one computer. Uh, the pairs are assigned. We switch them uh, at the longest. You work for five working days with another person, and then you're now paired with somebody else sharing a task on the same keyboard at the same time. There's a lot of conversation. If I opened up the glass doors of the room I'm in, you'd probably hear a lot of the noise of Menlo. It's a noisy environment. People think, boy, how can people work like this? Well, it's, it is very different. There's no question. Um, but it, it increases productivity, increases collaboration. All the things people think it doesn't do, it actually does. But it's not simply because we tore down walls, which I think is where a lot of companies go wrong in their open office environments. It's because we built a culture that assumes that this is about the work of the team mm. and about the work of the individual. I assume a lot of people look into that and go, open offices, okay, yeah, let's do that, rip down the walls, and they go, huh, this isn't working. This is actually worse. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, I always tell people, you know, that uh, when they do that, you know, a bunch of people get jammed out into a big open room and then they say, now you're going to collaborate. And they're like, I don't even like these people. you know. <laughs> and they all start putting earbuds in their ears and uh, they create this virtual 
office, you know, by by blocking out the noise around them, and we don't do that. Mm, I think I can I can hear slightly the the humming in the background of people talking there. So um, that's that's really cool. How do you? And I've I've been thinking about this recently um, as it relates to values in the workplace, and I assume that's something that is at the heart of creating a, a good culture. How do you go about? you know, getting people to work together collaboratively because it's often one of the hardest things to do. People have got their own ideas, their way to work, um, and often there's that that sense of conflict between, you know, pairing up people and getting them to work on a project together. How have you created, you know, that, that, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, that consistency or, or, you know, collaborative culture? Well, a lot of life is about practice, uh, and people get to practice having that conflict every single minute of every single day here. Yeah. It's not about avoiding conflict. It's, conflict. it's about having healthy, productive, conflicting conversations, because if you and I are trying to, you know, if we're working together shoulder to shoulder, and we're trying to solve a problem really well, I can almost guarantee you we're going to be better doing it together than we are going to be doing it separately, and then later trying to rectify uh, two things together. And if we do it by ourselves, entirely by ourselves in a silo, hmm. uh, typically that has to integrate with something else anyways. And if our thoughts are incomplete, we're going to spend a lot of time reworking whatever we did by ourselves by having a peer partner. And, and because we're pairing every minute of every day and we're always in pairs and we're switching the pairs, you and I are learning how to have these conflicting conversations, how to get to a consensus, how to get to a, a common goal, how to trade ideas back and forth. I mean, we're just practicing that all the time. It doesn't necessarily come naturally for everyone because, quite frankly, almost our entire education system today is based on individual achievement. Hmm. You know, block you off, fill out these forms, you know, write this paper, do this assignment, and for God's sakes, do it by yourself. And then we're going to grade you and we're going to grade you in judgment versus everybody else. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of our workplaces model those kind of environments that doesn't produce teamwork or collaboration. And often you see in like college situations where finally you get to work on group projects, kids don't do very well. They come out of that with kind of a negative view of what it's like to work together because there's Bill over in the corner who's slacking off and there's Susan who's grabbing all the work for herself and, you know, nobody's actually collaborating with one another. Mm. And uh, we just practice it all the time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I remember a couple of group projects I was involved with when I was uh, at university and, yeah, man, I mean, we never got really shown how to work collaboratively in a group, number one. And it was pretty much like that. We all met and then said, yep, you do that, that, that. And people went their own ways and they came back together and mashed it together. And the end product was, um, yeah, appalling, really. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, quite Which interesting. Which is what it looks like in the workplace often too, right? Yeah, yeah. What um, Before, because I assume your book is about, you know, really helping people do that. Now, if there's a, a person listening out there, just started their, their own business, small business, they've got a team, um, or even a, a larger company that's already established, where do we start before we get people working together as far as, you know, really creating that culture? Because you can't just go, okay, we're going to knock down walls. We're going to get people to work in teams. We're going to rotate this around on projects. Um, where do we begin before that? Yeah, I would always encourage people to begin to establish, especially in a, in a new company, kind of a mindset of experimentation. You know, mm. maybe you read something in one of my books or some other book or some other, uh, you know, podcast that they've listened to from one of your other speakers. And they're like, 
you know, that's an intriguing idea. If their next move then is to say, hey, I'm going to go back to our team and we're going to have a meeting and we're going to form a committee and we're going to write a policy and that sort of thing, you're never going to move forward. But if if you move from that sort of uh, mindset of contemplation and meetings to a mindset of action, trying stuff and running experiments, where you walk in and you say, hey, I, I got this idea. I have no idea if it'll work or not. But What's the smallest, cheapest version of this we could try to see if it works? Hmm. And so, you know, simple one. Let's say that, um, you know, somebody listens and says, boy, that pairing thing sounds interesting. I, but I'm not sure if we should ever switch to that. And we'd have to tear walls down to make it work like Menlo does. No, not really. You could pair up, you know, uh, uh, Lee and I could pair in a conference room for a couple of hours working on you know, this assignment and just see how it goes. Yeah. And if it worked pretty well, then maybe we'd try it again next week and we just start building up some momentum around a new idea. One of my favorite examples here at Menlo is uh, there was a time where, uh, you know, teams started reading these articles about how a kind of sitting is the new smoking, right? And we should be at standing desks yeah. and, you know, it started to become a conversation and, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, when you're a smaller company, uh, the idea of switching over to stand-up desks can be pretty daunting and expensive. Yep. Well, our team just grabbed a chair, put it up on a table, put a board on the bed of the chair, put the computer and keyboard on the board, and in like 30 seconds, they had the first stand-up desk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're just, but this is the mindset of experimentation that exists here. And I think that's a healthier place to be rather than say, well, let's have a furniture committee. Let's let's start bringing in samples of tables to see what happens. We might get to that eventually, but by running these small, simple, cheap experiments, you start to get into this mindset of taking action rather than contemplating everything. Right. So I've got two things from this so far. So really having that, that collaboration um, between the team, uh, essential for creating more energy and joy in the working lives of, of the staff and then allowing people to experiment with their ideas as well rather than just saying, no, that's not a good idea, I don't like it, just closing it out as, as, a, as a business leader. Absolutely. And I think the, um, yeah, I often arm people with the response because what might happen is there's somebody on a team who hears us talking today and they go back to their office and say, hey, let's, you know, I got this idea, let's try this. And if the person who didn't hear the podcast says, well, that won't work here. We tried that before. That's against policy. We, we'd have to meet on that. I want to arm your listeners with one simple response in that moment and say, yeah, I get it. But before we do all that, why don't we just try it? Why don't we run the experiment and see what happens? And then if we need to have a meeting, let's have a meeting. And in that way, you start to break down this barrier for what slows us down. Because I will tell you, I think that kind of slowing down really diminishes the energy of your team. Mm. And after a while, you know what they do? They just stop bringing new ideas. Yeah, yeah, I was so, just about yeah. to say that. And it makes sense too because what, you know, why do you want to go through all that bureaucracy if it's, it may not be the the best solution or the right idea, but if at least you can play with it, not only do you have then some tangible results that you can take to that meeting, um, but you're also going to save a lot of time in the process and encourage people to bring more ideas because no one wants to go through that process and that time of meetings and you know making up reports and plans. One of our most famous experiments here involves babies. Uh -huh. 
Right. Uh, we uh, we had a member Sounds of our concerning. team. <laughs> yeah, uh, a member of our team had a baby. She was off on maternity leave. She's ready to come back to work. She didn't have a viable daycare option because the daycare they planned to use was full. Grandparents lived too far away to help. And yet she wanted to come back to work. And I looked at her and I said, bring the baby in. She said, what do you mean? I said, bring her to work. And this wasn't an offer, hey, we're going to set up a daycare and that sort of thing. It's like, no, the baby's going to be with the parent all day long. Well, uh, just this past uh, year, we had, in the last 11 years, we've had 22 Menlo babies who've come into the office all day, every day, for about four months each. Uh, and it has been a delightful experiment that we've run here. We had no idea if it would work. And, uh, but it has just been terrific. And of course it builds loyalty with the parents because they think this is a cool place to work. It actually diminishes a lot of parental stress because it's really hard to drop a three month old or a four month old off at daycare for the first time, a little bit easier when it's seven or eight months. Um, and so, uh, and the team loves it. You know, these team, the team has raised the, the village has raised these babies in many ways. And, uh, and it worked. We didn't know it would work. And uh, we had a small nonprofit come in and kind of check us out for this because they were thinking of doing the same thing. And they met with me and a few others over lunch. And then at the end of it, one of their guys, and this was like a seven-person team, one of their guys says, okay, let's go back to the office. Let's have a meeting. Let's form a committee and let's write a policy about this. And I looked at him. I said, no, just run the experiment. Because if you, if, you, if you set up the committee to write the policy, you'll never do it. Hmm. Just go try it. Just give it a crack. Yeah, I like it. How do you I assume you come across this occasionally where someone has an idea that perhaps is just not going to work or just totally out there? I mean, are there those ideas that you have to sort of knock on the head in a nice, polite, positive way, or do you just allow people to experiment? Yeah, we, we are far more inclined to allow the experiments because yeah. um, this is almost an essential leadership development exercise because if, if you have an idea and you cannot influence your peers and your, you know, your community members here at Menlo to follow you, you're not actually leading. You're out on a walk by yourself. And so there's a little bit of a learning to, quote unquote, sell your ideas to others. And our, in our view of that, it's not so much, you know, having the meeting to sell the idea. It's more like, can I get others to join me in this experiment? And if you can't, those tend to die in the vine pretty quickly. So we don't worry too much about those. Uh, we don't worry too much about stuff that we try. In fact, uh, you know, we kind of have a, an attitude here is that if 50% of our experiments aren't failing, we probably have turned the risk dial down too far. Hmm. And so, and, and it's funny how it tempers a lot of things because what you don't see are big, expensive, elaborate experiments going on. You'll just see people say, hey, we're going to try a really little version of this before it gets any bigger, just to see if the smallest version of this can possibly work. Yeah, well, it's really, it's just allowing people to, to bring in their ideas and, and feel comfortable where they work, uh, which is where they spend majority of their life. And, you know, important and isn't for, that what we wanted from work in the first place? Well, really, absolutely. I mean, honest with ourselves. Yeah, I know my wife um, resigned from a job um, a few years back now, but um, we had two young kids at the time. Did we have a second one. Yeah, we did. I'm pretty sure. Um, and they just weren't accommodating to scheduling. You know, she was she was very flexible and and happy to work um, some you know ridiculous sort of retail hours. But they weren't accommodating. They said, no, you've got to be open all hours, any hours, every day of the week. 
Um, and we just wanted some, you know, structure to that for daycaring and stuff like that. And it just wasn't accommodating, um, which is really a shame, isn't it? Because, I mean, she was a good worker. The, the company was a great company, uh, but they just had that sort of um, dry, cut and dry sort of policy that no, it's not what we do. Yeah, that's just to chop you off from a lot of potential workforce and, uh, you know, not knowing what kind of retail she was in. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, it's often helpful to have people in retail who mirror the customers who are walking in your door. And so if the, some of those customers mm. themselves are parents, uh, it's really helpful to have another parent who can commiserate with you about whatever you're going through in life. Yeah, but even if someone yeah, stays there and puts up with it, that just creates some, you know, unpleasantness within them that carries throughout the, the workplace mm-hmm. and the rest of the culture and that then rubs on onto the customers as well. You know, it creates that, yeah, that sort of nasty or unpleasant culture. And um, that's certainly... Well, at least for the disengagement, it's statistics you quoted earlier. Yeah. So um, I really like that. And experimentation, I mean, the crossover there to our own personal lives, and I'm a big believer in this, is... You know, there's so many ideas out there. We can jump online. Personal development is sort of where the podcast is at. You know, try this, do this. These are great ideas. Uh, People often don't experiment enough with these ideas, but I always say, you know, give it a go. If you don't like it after a week or 21 days or whatever it might be, you don't have to do it, you know, and experiment around with things. And I, I continue to do that with my schedule. You know, changing up my morning routine, trying things a little bit differently and, and seeing what really works for me. And I think there's that many ideas out there that you can't do them all. So it's just about experimenting and finding out what fits for you. Yeah. And if, you know, if you have members of your team who are similarly inclined to run experiments in their personal life, but every time they get to work, they're told don't. And there starts to be this chasm between their their personal life and their work life in terms of how do I use my brain differently in both places, you start to lose people pretty quickly, I think. And they start leaving their brain at home as they bring their body to work. Yeah. Yeah. So allowing that, that creativity, um, and individual, um, flair, I suppose, into the workplace. How do you encourage that? (laughs) Yeah, I, I think the, the best way to do that is take a hard, hard look at your, human processes how do you recruit how do you interview how do you select how do you onboard what's the hiring process look like because often that's where we tend to uh as as you know ceos managers organizations we will tend to start building the wrong kind of team uh because we have a really broken process for how we select team members and we've taken a radically different approach to how we build uh, the team itself. And you end up with this pretty eclectic group here. Right. So what's, what's and just, just briefly, I suppose, what's your radical, radically different approach to recruiting? Yeah, we, we don't ask questions during interviews, uh, during the entire process. We make it an audition. Uh, and we simulate the work environment so people right from the get-go start to understand what we're expecting. Uh, so, for example, uh, we would bring uh, in what we call an extreme interview, 40 or 50 people in all at once. And the number of people doesn't matter to us. It, it, can, it can scale pretty easily because you're going to be here for about two hours with us in this large group of people. And what we do is we pair you during the interview. And so, you, and you're pairing with another candidate. 
Yeah. So if there's 50 of you, there will be 25 pairs. We assign one of our Menlonians, as we call them, uh, to be an observer. <laughs> yeah. And, and we have you work together for 20 minutes. And we give you the weirdest instructions ever. Uh, we tell you your job is to help the person sitting next to you get a second interview. Make your partner look good. And we give you something to work on. And we tell you it's not about how much you get done or anything like that. We just want to see how you collaborate with another human being because this is really important to us. We have you work together for 20 minutes. Then we switch the pairs because that's the way we work. And we do that three times. And then we send you all home. And then we talk about what we saw. Now, the whole time, we haven't looked at resumes for all these folks. The people who did the observations have no idea what your background is, where you went to school, what you studied, anything like that. All we are looking for first is, are, did you demonstrate what we like to call good kindergarten skills? Do you play well with others? <laughs> and if you do, we will invite you back on your own for a second interview for a day. You come in for an entire day and we pay you. Uh, you pair in the morning with one person on the team. You pair in the afternoon with another. Now you're starting to get this sense of how does it feel to work here. Um, and we get a sense for what's your work ethic like? How much do you know about what we do and that sort of thing? And uh, if that day works, we'll invite you in for a three-week paid audition. If it works for your life, sometimes it doesn't. We do clever things to get around that. But, but if it works for you, we want to give you this three-week paid trial. And then at the end of those, in, during those three weeks, we're giving you feedback on how you're doing so that you have a chance to improve even within those three weeks. Yeah. And in doing this, because we haven't looked at resumes as the pri primary filter, because we're looking for culture fit first before we're looking for skills capability, we end up with this incredibly uh, wide-ranging mix of people who've come here and literally been able to reinvent themselves in the workplace, which is for them very exciting and for us builds a very cognitively diverse team. Yeah, wow. That is quite radically different. I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> but it is, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's great. It, it's actually, uh, it's gotten to the point where people will contact us to watch our interview process because it's actually something you can just stand and observe. How do you, um, you must have some numbers there to observe people in that initial um, extreme interview process with 40 people. Yeah, generally speaking, we see about, uh, call it a 50% washout at the first go round. Yeah. So 40 will turn to 20. Uh, maybe 50% seconds, so 20 will go to 10. And usually by the time we get to the third level, we're pretty successful. So that 40 will typically turn into potentially six or seven people. Mm. And I'm just thinking about, I'm in real estate, and I could see that process being really valuable to, to this as well. And I've been through a lot of recruiting processes, and I can tell you what, people just look at that bit of paper, the resume, and base a lot of their judgment on that. And I think it's the worst thing you can do. Well, and the other subtle thing we're doing, uh, you know, not obvious, I guess, until I say it, is it is the team building the team, not the bosses building the team. Yeah. Because all of the, uh, all of the decision points are based on the people on the team who did the observations or doing the work with you. So it's not about, you know, I used to, the way I used to hire is I'd, I'd make the brilliant decision and then, Voice the new team member on my team and say, now you're all going to get along. And of course, they're like, who is this person? And what, you know, what say did I have that now this person lives in my neighborhood and I have to work with them every day? 
And so uh, in our way, what you get is a lot of ownership of the new people as they come in because when our team makes a decision, they're like, hey, we're going to help you succeed mm. because we we added you to the team, not the boss. Yeah. Is there some risk in that? Like, you know, some someone that perhaps just has a bit of a I – mean, I guess maybe that's a good thing. I guess if there is a personality clash, not to have them come in because that might infect the culture. But is there risk there? Well, you know, I, I think everybody worries that we're going to get like a bunch of carbon copies of ourselves. And I can tell you after 17 years now of watching not, this, not this team is anything but carbon copies. And, and this, we have all the normal conflicts that teams have. Uh, we just tend to work on them sooner because we're in such a highly collaborative environment. And yeah. The, and the, uh, the, uh, the whole notion of working here is about talking to another human being every day. Collaborative piece. I really like it. Made some good points in that. Um, I assume we can expect a lot more tangible and um, experimental ideas in the book and and things that we can use in our own workplaces, perhaps our own lives as well. Um, what, What do you expect the readers to take away from reading your book, Chief Joy Officer? You know, I, I kept a particular type of reader in mind. And it was somebody who looked a bit like me when I was in my trough of disillusionment days where I was frustrated and I didn't know where to turn. And I reached out to authors and books to help inspire me on a path. And so my biggest uh, goal for the reader of either one of my books is to inspire them to begin to make changes in their own lives. Yeah. That's really cool. Mate, I've got some quick round questions I want to ask you uh, before we wrap things up. You ready for this? You bet. What routines do you have that you believe, or what one routine do you have that you believe contributes mostly to your success? I get a good night's sleep every night. I sleep really well. Um, probably about seven hours of sleep, uh, which I used to try doing the less sleep thing and it didn't work well for me. Uh, I, I have a pretty certain routine and I, I get up early. Uh, I like to be kind of the first one in the office if I can. I like the world to kind of come up, you know, I, I like to watch the sunrise, if you will. Yeah. So I get up early. I, I do have a, a, a three day a week uh, workout routine that keeps my personal energy really high and feeling good about myself. That's cool. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? You know, all the things that bothered me uh, when I was young, where I wasn't sure, is it just me? I would tell myself, nope, you're right. That should bother you. Take action on it. Change it. (laughs) Okay. What is your definition of success? Ultimately in life, uh, to leave this campsite we call Planet Earth a better place than I found it. So do you have a productivity tool or technique practice that you use to help increase your overall effectiveness day to day? Coffee. (laughs) If I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? Your last meal. Oh, my last meal. (laughs) This is going to be funny. Uh, A bowl of cereal, probably frosted mini wheats. There you go. (laughs) I think that's the first cereal answer I've ever had. I'm a cereal entrepreneur after all. <laughs> <laughs> what um, 
you've lost me. What activity gives you the greatest sense of pleasure? <laughs> that stopped you dead in your tracks, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Say that again. What, what activity gives you the greatest sense of pleasure? Um, wow. Is spending time with my grandchildren. And my children for that matter, but the grandkids are so darn cute right now. If you had one book that you could pass down to your grandchildren, what would you select? Uh, there's a book by the Arbinger Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. By the Arbinger, how do you say that? Arbinger Institute. Our Arbinger, Arbinger, A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, Arbinger Institute. And the book is titled Leadership and Self-Deception. Good book for work and it's a great book for life. Do you have a quote or message that you could text or tweet to the entire world? What would that be? Uh, I like Gaul's Law uh, because it, it portends systems thinking and, uh, and it's tweetable. A complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked. Complex system designed that way from scratch never works and cannot be patched up to make it work. You have to start over with a working simple system. Mm-hmm. Who's that? Gaul's Gaul's Law. Gaul J G A L L. Uh, John Gaul wrote it. He was a famous uh, systems thinker and a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. John Gaul yeah, passed a- away uh, a few years ago. It's a pretty good one. What do you believe we all have a purpose or a hidden why? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think we, uh, you know, as um, uh, the famous quote goes, uh, uh, everyone has a song in their hearts and many of us uh, go to our death without it ever being sung. I, I think we each have a unique purpose and our job in life is to find it. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, I think the way to find it is to just continually look for those moments when you realize whatever activity you're doing is bringing you, in my words, deep and profound joy. Hmm. And as you begin to learn to, to develop that instinct of looking for those things, I believe you will ultimately find your purpose. Yeah, I like that. To find joy in every moment. I mean, that's, yeah, it's quite a good goal. What, if you were to describe the underlying motivation of everything that you do, what do you think that motivation would be across everything you do? Relationships. Uh, I am focused on building relationships. If I look at everything in my life, uh, whether it's a relationship I have with my wife, uh, with my family, with my community, uh, the relationships we build here within our team, with the pairing and switching of the pairs and the way we interview, the, the way we work with our customers and the relationships we build there, everything for me is about building strong human relationships. Hmm. Yeah, quite critical, aren't they? Yes. Rich, um, absolute pleasure. I'm going to stick the books, uh, your books in the show notes as well as the one you mentioned 
Um, so guys, check it out, thehiddenwide.com. This is episode 734. Um, so jump online there and uh, use the links within the show notes to help support the show. And um, yeah, reach out to Rich as well. Rich, how can they best um, connect? Where are you? Yeah, uh, so on social media, particularly Twitter, uh, I am Menlo Prez, M-E-N-L-O-P-R-E-Z. You can follow me. I try and share little tidbits of wisdom and humor along the way. Uh, our website uh, is MenloInnovations.com, and uh, come visit. Uh, we've had a number of guests from Australia and New Zealand come here. Uh, we get people, we get about three to 4,000 people a year who come to visit us from all over the world just to see how all these things we talked about work. And so uh, by all means, if you're in the area or you want to take a trip, please do come see us. If I'm in the area, I'll come and see you. I've got to get myself over there. I really do. Um, cool, man. Well, look, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Rich. I appreciate you sharing and I, I hope um, hope it all goes well forward from here for you and with the book, etc. And uh, let's connect again some other time. I'm sure you'll have another book Thanks. coming out, maybe about relationships. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, bringing me into your world and to uh, share my message with your audience. Yeah, cheers, mate. Guys, check it out, The Hidden Why, uh, episode 734 with Rich Sheridan. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwhy.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin Utsi. until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon